So we're in the book of Hebrews tonight, going through the book of Hebrews, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, just diving into it and just gleaning what the Lord has from it. The word of God's amazing how it, you know, it was written to the original audience, it ministers them, but it continues to minister to us as we look at it and study it and learn from it and apply it. And so uh, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to speak to us through it. Father, thanks so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for the power of it, Lord, that it is, uh, Lord, the power of God to salvation to those who um, believe in you, Lord. Lord, but we also know that it's a tool to sanctify us. And as you prayed to your father, you, Lord, you said, sanctify us by your, tr- by your word, for your word is truth. And so, Lord, that's our prayer tonight, that you would take this word and you would change us, make us more like Jesus. Lord, we live in a changing world. It's continually getting worse and worse, Lord, but nevertheless, you want to transform us, Lord, for something, for, for glory, from glory to glory, Lord. So help us, Lord, to be set apart for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Hebrews chapter one tonight. We're going to look at verses one through three, just beginning the book, diving into these first three verses. Have you ever been in a conversation with a person on the phone or maybe in person where you just wish that they would just get straight to the point? Where it's like, you know, they just keep going on. It's like, okay. It's like, yeah, okay. Uh-huh. It's like over and over. Okay, yeah, I got that. Okay, sure, yeah. You know, and, but, but they just keep going on. It's like, I wish they would just get to the point. Well, we don't have to worry about that problem in the book of Hebrews. Because the writer gets straight to the point. No introduction, right? No personal introduction of himself. He just jumps straight into his point. He gets straight to the point. And his point is to contrast the old things of Judaism with the new things of Christianity, namely in Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus. And he has a good reason why he does it. And that, and that reason, is, as we talked about last week, was the Christians there, they were under attack. They were being persecuted by the Jews in the area. And the philosophy arose among them and saying, hey, you know what? You can actually stop this persecution by just returning back to Judaism. Set your faith in Christ aside. Go back to Judaism. And when your Jewish ancestors, your brothers and sisters see that, hey man, they'll welcome you back in and your persecution will stop. Well, the writer heard about that. And so he wrote this letter to these Christians who were living in the area of Judea. And he says, hey, there is no turning back. There is no compromise. You're on a one-way street moving forward looking forward to Jesus, who's the only way to heaven. And he's going to show them the greatness of our faith by pointing to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So as I said, the writer wastes no time, but he jumps straight in by giving us the first contrast. And that first contrast is is in verses 1 through 3. We see the contrast between God's Old Testament revelation through the prophets and God's New Testament revelation in Jesus Christ. And so um, that's what the writer is going to focus on. So we begin in verse 1. We see God's Old Testament revelation through the prophets. And so he takes them back for a second and kind of gives them an overview of what God previously said in the Old Testament. He says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. And so we're talking about revelation tonight. And the word revelation means to reveal And that's what the Bible is. It is God's revelation of himself. God has desired to reveal himself to mankind. Now notice the writer says God. 
And it's important to always begin with God as you talk about revelation because God has to be the initiator of the revelation of himself because God is incomprehensible. Meaning God cannot be known unless he chose to reveal himself to us. He's infinite. And man, in, in our, our puny little mind, we can't understand an infinite God. But God in his grace and you know, in his love for us has chosen to reveal himself to you and I. He's chosen to communicate to us because he wants to be known. The reason why God wants to be known is because he's a relational being. God wants a relationship. That's who God is. He's a relational being who wants to have a relationship. And because of that, God made you and I in his image, in his likeness, right? When he made Adam and Eve, he says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. People debate, well, what's the image of God? Well, one of those characteristics that mankind shares with God is we're relational beings. We have a desire for a relationship. It could be a relationship with a spouse, right? Unless the Lord has called you to celibacy, which means that you're single for the glory of the Lord. That's fine. Some people have that gift. But we all have that desire for a relationship with God. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, said that God has placed eternity in our hearts. So we have that longing for an eternal relationship with an eternal being, and that's God. So God has chosen to reveal himself. God has chosen to communicate. Relationship 101, right? Communication. You can't have a relationship without communication, and God has taken that first step in order to communicate. God is communicating to mankind generally through creation, but he's also chosen to speak to man specifically through his word. Generally through his creation, the Bible says that we can look at the universe and see the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's what Psalm 19 says. Mankind, you can look at mankind and know that there's a God. We see that in Genesis 126. The conscience of man, or as Paul writes about in Romans 2.15, he talked about the moral law written on our hearts. Man's conscience speaks to him about right and wrong. Now the question is, is how does man know right and wrong? C.S. Lewis said it the best. He says, how can you call a line crooked unless you have a knowledge of a straight line? Who told you what's right and what's wrong? Well, God has written on your hearts because you're made by a moral being. And so the fact that we're created in the image of God you know, and we have this moral law written in our hearts shows us that there is a God. So Romans 1 summarizes it all. He says, Paul says, because there's a God and he has revealed himself through creation, his invisible characteristics are clearly seen, being understood by all things. So therefore, if man does not believe in God, they're without excuse. If a person does not know God, it's not God's fault. They're without excuse. They have no reason to reject God because God has chosen to reveal himself to mankind through creation. Not only that, but God has given us the grace of God through the cross of Christ that we can choose to respond to God. We have the spirit of God, as Jesus said, who's been sent into all the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and a judgment. Now, yes, a person can't know everything about God through creation, right? We know that. A person can't be saved by just looking up at the universe. But we do know that if they'll choose to seek after God in that revelation that he gives them, then God will see to it that he gives them more revelation. Some people say, why do people want to go to the darkest, deepest parts of Africa to be a missionary? 
You know, why do people have this desire? Well, maybe because there's someone over there who's responding to the revelation that God has given them and he's choosing to give them more by sending them a missionary, right? And so, and that's just one way God does it. God can give him a dream, a vision. I mean, God will go out of his way to save people because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God chooses to reveal himself. Now, because creation and conscience are not perfect communicators, and they can't perfectly communicate the nature of God, God has chosen to speak to man through human language. God said, I really want to be known by man, and I want man to know me, so I'm going to make it real plain. I'm going to speak to man through their own language. That was Hebrew, right, in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, translated now into multitudes of languages. Now, God desired to speak to man, and the way that he did it is by revealing himself through prophets. And that's what the writer says here. God has spoken through prophets. Now, a prophet was a servant of God. That's in contrast to a false prophet who was not a servant of God. But they were a servant of God who were chosen by God to speak for God. They were basically the mouthpiece of God. And that is how God chose to reveal himself to the folks in the Old Testament, the fathers, as the writer says here. Now, in the Old Testament, a person was considered a prophet if they held the office or the gift of a prophet. For example, there were some guys who actually had the occupation of being a prophet, like Jeremiah or Isaiah. That was their job. I mean, they were prophets by office. But there were some guys who had the gift of prophecy, but they had a different job, like David, for example. He was a king, but yet he spoke the word of God. He was a prophet. Daniel was a statesman. He was working in the Babylonian empire, but yet Jesus said that he was a prophet. And so God used prophets in the Old Testament as mouthpieces in order to communicate to man his revelation. Peter says something interesting in 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Here's what he says about prophets in the Old Testament. He says, knowing this, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, the phrase private interpretation is best understood as meaning the fact that the origin and the thoughts of the prophets didn't start with them. It didn't come from their own will. It didn't come from them thinking things up. Like, hey, you know what? I think this will be cool to tell others about God. No, it began with God. God was the one that moved on their hearts. God was the one that gave them the revelation, and they spoke as God chose to reveal himself. So that's just kind of a little background about the prophets. And, and about revelation. But, you know, so we know that here's our God. He wants to communicate. He wants to speak. And he's chosen to do that through prophets. The source of what the prophet said was from God. But the writer takes it a step further now. He talks about the timing in which the prophets spoke and kind of the ways that they communicated. He says that the prophets spoke at various times and in various ways. And so, he said he talked to the fathers. Now, this guy was a Jewish guy writing, right? And he wrote to a Jewish audience. And so the fathers is referring to the nation of Israel and the folks that they came from, like Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, and those folks. And so God sent these prophets to Israel to speak to them. And he did this at various times. They didn't all just speak at one time. I mean, God didn't choose to just say, hey, okay, Adam, 
here it is. I'm going to give you the whole Bible. Sit down, make yourself comfortable for a while. I hope the air conditioning's on. You know, the fall of man's happening, so the flood's going to come. Heat's going to, temp, you know, temperatures are going to change and everything else. So make yourself comfortable for a while. No. But he chose to reveal himself over a period of time. We say progressively, because that's what God did. God chose to reveal himself progressively over a period of time. He didn't, he didn't just give it all at once, but he chose to give more and more information as you go through the scriptures. Actually, there's some 1,000 years that God took in the Old Testament to give his revelation through the prophets. It probably began with Job. Job was probably the first book of the Bible written. He probably lived around the time of Abraham, maybe a little bit earlier. And the last book that God chose to communicate through was through Malachi. And then after Malachi, there was a 400 years of silence. And then John the Baptist busts on the scene. Then Jesus comes on the scene. Some 1,000 years that God chose to speak during this time. Now the question arises, well, why did God take so long? Why didn't God choose, why did God choose to reveal himself progressively? Well, I think one, one reason that we can give is because in order for God to communicate his ways and his character to man, it must be seen in his relationship with man. I mean, think about your spouse or your friends that you hang out with. Someone can write you a letter talking about themselves, right? They can tell you everything about themselves in a letter. But when you hang out with that person and you see that person as they go through life, you learn a lot about that person. And so God, because he was speaking through prophets, and as we'll see in contrast to Jesus, were inferior, God took a lot of time in order to reveal his ways and his character and his nature as, he, as he's seen throughout the Old Testament and how he relates to mankind. Yes, he gave us his word, but he also revealed to us his ways and his nature. So God took a while. He didn't just give it all at once. But he also spoke in various ways. Some of the ways that the prophets spoke was through teaching. They just flat out taught them. They gave laws. They gave covenants. There was miracles that God spoke through. There was dramas. I love the dramas like Ezekiel. You know, God would say, hey, lay on your side for a long time. And then, you know, this would illustrate this. You know, they had all these different ways that they would illustrate truth. There was types, things that were pictured and that were fulfilled. There was parables, which is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. There was prophecy, right? Forthtelling something in the future. There was history, poetry. So God communicated many different ways. God wanted to make sure that his revelation of himself got out. And he took a lot of time to do it. And he spoke in many ways. Well, why did he do it? Well, as I said, remember, it's all based on relationship. Israel in the Old Testament is called the wife of Yahweh. That's what Israel is called. It's called the wife of Yahweh. And actually, there was a whole book written about that illustration, the book of Hosea. And Israel turned their back on God. And God said, okay, Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to give this message about my wife. And he gave this message about this woman who was married and she went off and was a harlot, you know, and, and it's, it was, it was a graphic illustration of what Israel was doing with idols. But God chose to reveal himself to Israel because he wanted a relationship with them. Now with God's revelation comes a responsibility. Revelation always brings responsibility to whom much is given, much is required. And because Israel was God's chosen nation, because God chose to give them his revelation, they would be held accountable for not responding to it and revealing it to others. 
And they were disciplined for that. And we see that God said, man, you are my light. You are my vineyard. But yet I gave you my revelation over and over and over. You know, and Jesus at times told the, the leaders, man, if the Gentiles would have heard this, they would have repented. But yet his own people who had the scriptures, who memorized the scriptures, didn't respond to it. And so it's awesome that we're going through the Bible, but it's important that we always remember that as we, res- as we hear the revelation of God, he wants us to respond to it. It's not just something that we think, oh, yeah, that's cool. We're, we're, we're to respond to it. We're to, to follow after God because we're called the bride of Christ as the church. And the Lord wants us to draw deeper to him. So that's God's revelation in the Old Testament. What about now? What about today? What about the New Testament? What about the church? Well, the writer now contrasts the Old Testament revelation with what God has done in the New Testament in verses two and three. So in contrast to that, we have God's New Testament revelation given to believers in the last days. First, we see God's timing. He says here in verse two, God has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So the New Testament writers, they all agreed that they were living in the last days before the coming of Jesus. The moment Jesus came and died and ascended, they understood that they were living in the last days. They understood that Jesus can come back at any moment. And because they were living in the last days, they knew that God was going to complete his revelation. He was going to fulfill it. You see, since God's revelation was progressive, he gave more and more over time. Since we're in the last days, it implies that we have a greater revelation. And the New Testament is that. The New Testament is the completion or the goal of the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament pointed towards Jesus and the work that he would do. Five times Jesus in the Bible says that the Old Testament was all about him. Five times he says that. He told the, the folks on the road to Emmaus, he says, hey guys, you know, everything that's written in the law of Moses and the, and, and, you know, the, the prophets and the Psalms are all concerning me. They're all about me. The Bible says he's come in the volume of the book as written of him. So all these things all pointed towards Jesus. And when Jesus came on the scene and spoke his word, you know, and, get, and you know, now we have the New Testament, we have God's complete revelation, which holds us to a greater accountability, Right? and responsibility before God. So the timing, in these last days, God is fulfilling his, his word. He, he's given us his complete revelation. Also, we have a perfect revealer. You see, God chose to use prophets in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, in the last days, God has spoken to us through his son. It's through his son. Now, notice the word his in this verse is in italics. That means that this word was actually added by the translators to help kind of clarify this verse. And so, you know, so here's this verse in the Greek comes over and they say, hey, let's, let's help us clarify this a little bit. But in reality, this verse is actually, it doesn't really need to be helped out. Because what God is communicating here to us, to this, is that God has spoken in the Son, in Son. In other words, God has given us the revelation of himself through the character and the nature of the, the Son of God. And so think about that, what the writers, in, you know, communicating and what the folks are receiving. So here's these prophets. They took a thousand years for God to reveal his ways and his words to Israel. But yet in the last days, God has spoken to us through his son. It's all summed up in him. God is revealed through the character and nature of his son. All right. A picture said that in John 14. He said, guys, when you see me, you see the father. They said, what? Hold on. Wait a second. 
He said, yeah, when you see me, you see the Father. You know me by my words and my works. In John 1.18, John says, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him to us. And so as Jesus walked this earth, he represented God to us. How is that possible? Because Jesus is God. He was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. His life, his teachings, everything about him sums up all of who God is and how God desires to work. People ask, well, what's God like? Well, look at Jesus. Remember that really lame song years ago? Oh, it, it just make me so mad. What if God was one of us? Remember that? And it's like, over and over, it's like, hey, you must not know anything about the Bible because God did become one of us, right? God became a man. And he lived among us, right? And he, he represented it. How many people listen to that song? Don't, don't raise your hand. I'll have to pray for you. <laughs> right? I mean, God revealed himself to us, to Jesus Christ. What's God like? Well, look at Jesus. The word there, declare him to us, is the word exegete. Like people say, well, how do you teach at your church? Well, we teach exegetically, which means we pull out and reveal, right? That's how we teach. Well, that's what Jesus' life was. He expounded God to man. All you had to do is look at Jesus. How would he relate to this, the woman at the, at the well? How would God relate to her? How would God relate to the woman caught in adultery? Well, just like Jesus would have. That's, that's God represented to us. So, wow, what a contrast from the prophets in the Old Testament who are fallen sinners who need salvation like us. We have a greater revelation. Yes, it's all God's word. It's all amazing. It all speaks. But in the New Testament, why turn back, the writer's saying to the, to the folks, to Judaism, when you can press forward to Jesus, who is the revealer of God, who's given us God's sum total of his revelation himself. It gets better. He says, you want to talk about the revealer, the instrument that God used? He says, Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. Look at the rest of verse two. Whom he has appointed heir of all things. Jesus is the appointed heir to all things. That means that he is the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth. And he, he deserves this, this title. He deserves this position. He deserves it personally, practically, and prophetically. Personally, no created being can receive this title. No created being can exalt himself. Right? That's, what, that's why Lucifer fell. Because he said, I want to exalt my throne above the stars of God. He wanted to rule, Isaiah 14 says. And God says, well, because of that, of that pride, I'm going to cast you down. Jesus is the exalted king because he's also God, a very God. He's the second person in the Trinity. Practically, Jesus humbled himself and was willing to take up the human body, a human body, and come to this earth and live submitted to the Father's will. And we're told that because of Jesus' sacrifice, in resurrection, God has exalted him above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me by my father. It's through his sacrifice. Prophetically, the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would rule on the throne of David, that he would come back and establish a literal kingdom on this earth and rule and reign over all things. And Revelation 20 tells us that Jesus will do that. When Christ comes back at his second coming, it says that, and he reigned for a thousand years, 
well, what's a thousand years? Well, it's a thousand years, <laughs> right? He's going to rule and reign for a thousand years as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the heir to that throne. He's on the throne now. We don't yet see it because he hasn't come back yet, but he is. He's going to come back. Jesus is also the creator of all things. It says, through whom also he made the worlds. So Jesus was the active agent in creation of the universe. God created all things through Jesus. John 1, 1 through 3 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And so Jesus is the creator of all things and all things were created for him, for his glory. And so God created the universe and in the beginning of time, God worked in unison to do this. The Father worked through the Son, the active Word. He created all things. Now, he's called the firstborn over all creation. The Jehovah's Witnesses have taken this, and they say, well, that means that he's created, right? Well, no, it doesn't mean that at all. The word firstborn is an Old Testament term that referred to the preeminence or the authority to rule. And so because Jesus is the creator of all things, he has the right to rule over all things. He's the creator, right? And so he has the right to be exalted and for people to give him the reverence and the respect and the honor that he deserves. Verse three, who be in the brightness of his, that's the father's glory. So Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. The glory is a reference to God's glory in the Old Testament. The Jews called it the Shekinah glory. And the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament is seen as God's physical manifestation of his presence. You see, no one can look at God. Moses wanted to see God, and God said, Moses, you can't see me. But he said, here's what I'll do. I'll give you my afterglory. And so he saw the, the, you know, the glory of God pass by. Often this brightness, this glory is revealed in a light, a fire, or a cloud, Jesus is said to be the brightness of this glory. And the word brightness actually means effulgence, which is like the light rays that come from the sun, the S-U-N, right? As the sun comes up, you know, you, 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 know, you see these rays and you know that it's connected to the, you know, the sun. It's the same essence. And so Jesus revealed the glory of God to man. How did he do this? Well, John 1.14 says that he became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus revealed God to us, all of his glory. In the Old Testament, they can only see the light, the fire, the cloud, knowing that the presence of God was with them. But when Jesus was actually walking this earth, it was God with us, Emmanuel. They can actually look at him. He was actually revealing God to man. Verse 3 gets better. He's the express image of his person. The express image was used of the impression on a coin. So you know how the old Roman coins would have the impression of Caesar on the coin? Well, that's, the, that's that phrase, express image. Jesus is the express image of God. And so 
You know, he's the representation of God. He is the, the image of God revealed to mankind. And so, man, the writer of Hebrews, he's, you know, he's kind of given the machine gun approach here. He's like, you guys want to turn back and go back to the prophets because you guys think Judaism was so great? You're forgetting who Jesus is. I mean, he's given you a greater revelation. He's given you it in the last days, in the short period of time, it's the fulfillment. And look at the one who's revealing it to you. He's God, a very God. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. So Jesus was able to speak the world into existence. But he's also so powerful that he also upholds all things by his word. Or he maintains all things in the universe through his word. Colossians 1.17 says that in him all things consist. The word consist there means held together. So think about all these multitudes of atoms, right? In us and in this universe. Jesus was able to speak that into existence with his word. But not only that, he's able to keep them held together through the power of his word, right? Atomic bomb. With his word, he's able to hold those things together. It's the one that God wants to reveal to you. When he had by himself purged our sins, and so Jesus alone is the person who can only pay for our sins. No one else could, no prophet, no Muhammad, no Buddha. Only Jesus by himself, he purged our sins. He cleansed our sins because he was the only perf- person who was both God and man. He was able to, the only person who could satisfy the law of God and die as our sacrifice and as, and as our substitute for those who had broken God's law. And then finally, at the end of verse three, after all this, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus not only died, but God rose him again from the dead. God brought him to heaven. And now he sits at the right hand of God. The fact that Jesus is sitting is a reference to the fact that his work is complete. A priest would never sit in the temple. They were always moving. They were always working because the work of a priest was never done. They were always sacrificing, right? Because people's sins had to continually be covered in the Old Testament as they sacrificed animals. Well, Jesus, after he died for our sins, went and sat down in heaven at the right hand of God, meaning the work is done. He completed it once and for all. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high because he has a position of authority. He's the son of God, and he's coming back one day to establish his kingdom on this earth. So what an encouragement and a reminder this would have been to a group of persecuted Christians who wanted to go back to Judaism. The writer says, hey guys, rather than looking back to what was in the past, why don't you look forward to Jesus? He's placed you on this one-way street. He wants you to move forward, and he wants you to keep your eyes on Jesus, who's greater than anything that the world can offer, anything that Judaism can offer. Well, how about you and I? Well, the world, the flesh, and the devil always wants us to look back, right? It always wants us to look back at the old life. They always want us to stop. But in reality, if you're stopped, if you're not moving forward in your relationship with Jesus, well, in reality, you're actually going to start turning back. You're going to start moving back. We need to move forward. And the only way to move forward is by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Remember Peter? As he got out of the boat, the waves and the winds and everything was crazy. But when he kept his eyes on Jesus, he kept walking forward. But when he took his eyes off Jesus, that's when he began to sink. The only way to move forward is by keeping our eyes on Jesus. And there's a good reason why, because he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's all that we need in this life. I want to close with one more quote from the Gospel of John. Everybody was turned away from Jesus. He gave a hard statement. And some people who were following him just for bread were turning away. 
And Jesus turned to his tw- the 12 and Peter in John 6, 67, 69 and said this. He said, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Daily, the Lord asks us that. Are you also going to turn away? Are you going to be like these folks and want to turn away? Our response seems to be like, Peter, Lord, where else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone are the one who has revealed God to us, which is reality, right? You alone are the one who can only purge our sin. You alone are the one who's sitting at the right hand of God who's going to come back and establish your kingdom. In the end, it's all going to make sense, right? But for now, we need to reject the noise of the world, reject the noise of the enemy, the temptations that he might bring our way, and keep our eyes on Jesus. Amen?